Okay, hallelujah, praise God. I'm always out of my element when I have to hold a microphone and preach because I'm not used to that. Um, so just to pray for me that the Lord will help me to... It, it, seriously, you wouldn't think it would be, would be as distracting as it is for me to stand here and hold a microphone, but it, really, it takes thought for me to hold a microphone and preach because I'm just not used to this. So, um, but I do have my jacket today, you're right. So... You're right. So I'm a, I'm a little bit more in my comfort zone having my jacket. You're right. Last week I was without a jacket and held the, the microphone. So God really had to help me. Praise God. Are you ready to pray so we can go into the word? Let's do that. Father, thank you so much for this time together. And thank you so much that, uh, Lord, we just had a great time of worship here today. And uh, we just thank you for your presence this here. We thank you for your word that we're about to open up and look at. And uh, thank you for the teaching that you have in store for today. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts and minds that comprehend and understand what the Spirit is saying to the church and that you would equip us today, Lord, for the advancement of your kingdom and the decimation of your enemy's kingdom. So for these things, we thank you and, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, today we are still continuing with the series that I started a few weeks ago called Always Have an Answer. We're in the fourth uh, teaching this week in this series, and I don't know how long this is going to go. Maybe one more session, maybe two. I don't, I don't know yet. Uh, but um, we've been talking about ways to answer common objections and questions to the Christian faith. For those of you, and you all ought to be out preaching the gospel and and sharing your faith with other people. And when you do that on a regular basis, you're going to come up against objections and questions and inquiries and even arguments from people that, um, you know, they have, and sometimes very legitimate objections. They're not trying to be argumentative, but sometimes it's just legitimate questions and, and objections that they have that are preventing them from coming to faith. And so this whole series has been designed to help you to successfully address those objections and questions so at least you can help that individual get past that particular hurdle so that that one's out of the way so maybe eventually they'll come to Christ. So our master text this morning is in Hebrews chapter 4 and it's just one verse this morning, so a really short master text. So if you'll stand up with me and let's honor the reading of the word. And this is a familiar passage for some of you, I think. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And let me just go ahead and read verse 13. I think it's kind of a tied-in thought here. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. Well, now, I've heard it said for, from people who... Uh, train others in public speaking that you, sh you should never apologize for anything when you embark upon a lecture or a teaching. But I'm going to 
break that rule and do that this morning because I'm going to tell you in advance that for some of you, this teaching may be a little dry today. It may even be outright boring for some of you because a lot of this is very academic today. And that's why you don't have the, the, the notes in your bulletin are just a blank sheet of paper for you to write in your own notes. This is very different than the teachings that I usually do rather than being packed full of, you know, little fill in the blanks and, and uh, Bible passages. This is going to be a lot of science today. Okay. Uh, so this might feel a little bit like a college class to some of you. Uh, so again, if you're not interested in that sort of thing, this may bore you a little bit. I don't know, but these are questions and objections that people have that we're going to be covering today that I do believe that we need to know how to answer. Even if you're not a big fan of science, you're going to run into some things from time to time that people have questions and objections about. But if it helps, I'll tell you in advance that we are going to have just a little bit of information on dinosaurs today. So that might be kind of fun for some of you. Okay. All right. So here's my, uh, the objection that we're going to deal with today. And it's Essentially, um, everything's kind of under this umbrella, okay? The Bible is an invention of men, and it's full of errors. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, by the way, on that note, many Bible questions have been answered as new discoveries have been made in the fields, uh, in fields such as uh, language, history, archaeology, and other sciences. So, what most people claim, and then you can, what I'm going to put up on the screen for you are ways that you can answer this um, objection. So if you want to take a picture of the screen or whatever, if you want to remember these, you can. But I'm going to throw a lot at you today. So I'm happy to send you these slides later on. If you like them and you want them, I'm happy to send you the slides later. So what most people claim as errors in the Bible aren't really errors, but difficulties. And what I mean by that is one example would be the story of biblical creation versus evolution. I'm going to get to evolution. I'm not going to deal with that at length today, but uh, evolution's a theory. It's still a theory. It's not been proven. It's not really a, an error on the Bible's part. It's a difficulty because there's this theory of evolution that's been rammed down our throats since the 1920s. And uh, the Bible says com something completely different. So who's right? So it's not really an error on the Bible's part. And I'm going to show you why that's true, but more of, a, more of a difficulty. So on that note then, I want to say that that doesn't mean, however, that there are not translational errors in the Bible, meaning that the perfect written word of God in Greek and Hebrew gets translated poorly into other languages. Uh, but that's not a Bible problem or a God problem. That is a man problem, okay? And that's one reason why you see so many different translations of the Bible now, because uh, scholars are constantly trying to improve upon uh, the translations as new discoveries in language and history emerge, and or the translators are simply trying to make the Bible more readable to modern readers. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but... Here's another statement that you can make to people that have this objection that people often read about or hear that the Bible has apparent inconsistencies when they haven't even taken the time to study out all the facts themselves or even read the passages in question. And I talked about that a little bit last week that 
some people know, the, know enough of the Bible to be dangerous, and they know passages wrenched out of context from the surrounding verses, and they build little mini theologies and doctrines around this that are completely wrong completely inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So that's what a lot of people do, even people that, you know, are not followers of Christ. They know one or two passages, and they think they know the Bible, and they use those passages as objections, actually. Uh, Well, regardless of the kind of difficulties in the Bible, uh, there's not a single irreconcilable error that can be found in the Bible's pages. Now, on that note, here's another statement that you can make to people along these lines. The Bible claims to be the perfect word of God. So what passages in the Bible are you referring to that are in error? And see, most people that have that objection and you ask them that question, they can't answer it because they don't know enough of the Bible to be able to answer that question, but they, they heard that, they read that, that there's inconsistencies and errors in the Bible, so that's their objection, but if you ask them that question, they don't have an answer to it. So you just diffuse that right there with that question. But let me give you another one. Um, of course, it says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So you can make this next statement to people. All other religious writings, such as the Quran and the Book of Mormon, etc., have tons of inconsistencies and errors, but not the Bible. So if you study out the Quran, the Book of Mormon, there's all kinds of errors, inconsistencies, untrue statements. Uh, in those writings and many, many others, but not one inconsistency or, uh, or, or error has been found in the Bible, even though people have tried for generations to find them, but they're not there. All right, so, and this is a, yet another little, I guess, answer or inclusion in the conversation that you have with people. This is a very important point here. 44 men from all walks of life over a period of about 1,600 years were somehow supernaturally able to pin a perfectly consistent and progressive message from God that mankind is infected with sin And see, you always need to swing it back around to that point right there. That's the centrality of the gospel right there. So regardless of what objection you come up against, you always swing it back around to the centrality of the gospel and man's problem with sin. So that's what we're doing right here with this statement. 44 men from all walks of life over a period of about 1,600 years were somehow supernaturally able to pin a perfectly consistent and progressive message from God that mankind is infected with sin and evil, but that God loves us and has put a plan in place to redeem us and save us from our sins. Do you know what that plan is? You can ask them. And then you can elaborate on the gospel and God's plan of salvation. So you see how in these last several weeks, I've been addressing these objections that are really kind of rabbit trail objections, honestly. They're, they're not central to the, the gospel, but you always, you address the objection and then you diffuse it and then you swing it back around to the centrality of the gospel message. Is that making sense? Because you always have to bring it back around to man's sin problem. And that, you know, regardless of what the peripheral rabbit trail objection is you always swing it back around to the the individual has a sin problem that they cannot resolve themselves they need a scapegoat they need a savior and that scapegoat and savior is Jesus Christ
So then, why should we believe the Bible then? Why should we trust in the Bible? Well, first of all, because of its historical accuracy. And actually, before we go through the points on that slide, I want to go back to the previous slide and the, the point that it made, because I really want to emphasize the fact that the Bible was written, this, this book that you're holding was compiled over about 1,600 years by 44 men, all of which lived in very different times and places, and most of them didn't know each other. How in the world is it possible for 44 men to pin a, a progressive message from God over a period of 1,600 years? They lived in very different cultures, very different times, very different backgrounds. How in the world were they able to write these writings and they were all compiled together and they all progressively have a very consistent message from God from cover to cover? that God loves us, he has a plan of redemption for mankind's sinfulness. How, how is that possible unless God was involved, right? Okay, so why should we believe the Bible then? Well, number one, because of its historical accuracy. So again, it covers about a 4,000 year period starting about 6,000 years ago. It provides historically accurate details concerning people, places, and events. It's an authentic secular writings corroborate, corroborate its account. So authentic secular writings, that means writings outside of the Bible, uh, validate its accounts. It's historical accuracy is what that's saying. Also, archaeology has confirmed its accuracy when places and people were often classed as fables. And then we, there's new discoveries in archaeology and history that are made that find out, wow, this really did happen. Like, for example, in the Red Sea that was parted when Moses led the people of Israel through the Red Sea. Guess what's at the bottom of the Red Sea? Chariots, chariot wheels, of uh, uh, equipment, you know, war equipment from the, the ancient Egyptians. It's all there at the bottom of the Red Sea. So it's stuff like that, archaeological findings like that, that corroborate and validate uh, what the Bible teaches us. And I would also add to the historical accuracy of the Bible that it's also accurate scientifically. See, for example, and this is just one example of many that I could use. The, in the book of Numbers, God instructed Moses to write about laws of hygiene for the people of Israel. Like, for example, if someone was sick in a tent, they were to put containers over the, the or I, I should say lids, over the food and water containers. And they were to wash in a certain way. And uh, if somebody died in a tent, likewise, they were to, you know, the living would come in and cleanse the body and, and wash everything down. And they were also to wash before they ate. And these were all laws of hygiene long before germs were ever even discovered. Now, let me let you in on something. Moses, as you remember, was raised as an Egyptian. We now know that the Egyptian medical system had 300 prescriptions that contained dung as the main ingredient. What's my point? That the Egyptians obviously knew nothing about germs and contagion. 
And Moses was raised in that culture. So how could Moses know about germs and contagion when we didn't even know about germs until about 1890 with the advent of the electron microscope? In fact, certain people um, that came along pri just prior to the electron microscope in the 1800s, certain doctors and scientists that proposed that there were organisms so small that you couldn't see them with the human eye were deemed as insane. And some of them, at least one that I can think of, was put into an insane asylum. Brilliant doctor, doing good for mankind, but he taught that there's organisms so small that you couldn't see them with the naked eye. They said he was insane, put him in an asylum where he spent the rest of his life and died there. And they eventually, later on, after the electron microscope proved that these organisms exist, they erected an, a, a statue of him in Budapest to honor his memory. <laughs> um, so how could these people... 4,000 years ago, how could Moses have known about germs and contagion and laws of hygiene unless God was instructing him what to write? Does that make sense? Let me give you another example of the, of the, the miraculous nature of this. During the, the Black Plague in Europe uh, in the 1400s that wiped out, I forget how many it was, it was an unbelievable amount of people. It was m tens of millions of people. Um, it could have been up to 70 million people. I don't remember the exact number, but it was tens of millions of people that succumbed to that black plague. Well, it was a, a plague of contagion. There was several different sources of it, but um, the, the point that I want to bring out about this is that the Jewish communities in Europe were hardly affected by this plague. You know why? Because they had impeccable hygiene, because they were still adhering to the Old Testament laws regarding hygiene. Okay, and it, it, was, it was such a stark difference. All the people around the Jews were dying, but the Jewish communities were practically untouched. And so people started to blame the Jews for the cause of the plagues. <laughs> but it's actually because they were simply adhering to these laws of hygiene that God passed down in the Old Testament that protected them from uh, contagion. Isn't God smart? Amen. Praise the Lord. So... Charlie Campbell said, there are dozens of writings outside of the Bible that verify the historical accuracy of many of the names of people, places, and even uh, and events mentioned in the Bible. In fact, external sources verify that at least 80 persons mentioned in the Bible were actual historical figures, 50 from the Old Testament and 30 people from the New Testament. As archaeology progresses, New discoveries and language progress. It continues to just validate the Bible. Now, let's talk about the historical accuracy of Luke for a moment, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, Metzger in 1965 uh, wrote, In the book of Acts, the historian Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine of the Mediterranean islands. There is not the slightest mistake in his references. Early criticism of Luke's historical accuracy has waned as more and more discoveries are made. With each archaeological discovery, the text of the Bible is reinforced as accurate. Thus, the claims of inspiration, meaning inspiration divine inspiration, the claims of inspiration are strengthened. Praise God. But yet there's still those out there who refuse to believe, 
who push back. As a matter of fact, there's a publication out there called Skeptic Magazine. And you see there uh, on the, the cover of that particular edition, um, that is um, Richard Dawkins, who's one of the most outspoken atheists of our time. And the cover of that magazine is depicting Richard Dawkins as a knight slaying the dragon of religion and faith. So Skeptic Magazine is very anti-religion, anti-faith, and very pro-science, but I'm going to call it pseudoscience. Because I'm going to show you how some of the true science, truly interpreted, actually validates the Bible. But sources like Skeptic Magazine says that science disproves the Bible. Well, folks, listen to me. And man, what I'm about to tell you, I could literally do an entire series on some of these next statements. I can't get into all the details of it today, but I'm gonna just kind of skim the surface, okay? But the science is there. Scientific evidence is mounting that life sprang forth suddenly. Now, in scientific circles, this is called the Cambrian explosion, where they find that in early Earth history that all these life forms just sprang forth all of a sudden. There's scientific evidence now that's showing that life did indeed spring forth suddenly rather than evolving very slowly over millions of years of time. There's also scientific evidence that, that there is clear and unmistakable and precise design in the human body and in all of life on earth and indeed the entire universe. There's scientific evidence more than I can even list here that shows that. There's also scientific evidence that the earth is relatively young, thousands of years old, not billions of years old, and that man and dinosaur actually walked together on the earth. Now, if you don't believe me, I'm going to show you some very clear evidence of that right now. Look at the screen. What you're seeing on the left there is what they call a petroglyph, which is a cave drawing. And that cave drawing of early man, that's, I don't know where that, I think that's Utah, a cave drawing in Utah, actually, of early American Indians. Um, they saw seropod dinosaurs, apparently. Look at that drawing. I mean, how could they know about creatures like that unless they saw them with their own eyes? Because the first dinosaur skeletons weren't dug up until about 1850 or so. The word dinosaur didn't even exist until about 1850, but yet American Indians were seeing them. In fact, you probably have heard the American Indians coined the term, um, the, uh, was it called the fire, firebird or the thunderbird? Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, thunderbird is the, the correct term, Samara. Appreciate your help on that. Uh, the Thunderbirds were pterosaurs, pterosaur dinosaurs. I mean, we have, we have historical accounts and pictures. In the Civil War, I, I actually should have thought to bring that picture in. There's a, there's a picture of some, I think, some Union soldiers during the Civil War that shot down a, a pterosaur, a pteranodon to be specific. And there's a picture of that. I should have thought to bring it. Um, but so yeah, that, but, but most compelling is this, these two footprints that were found in fossilized rock. Now look at this, that's a, that's a human footprint with a theropod dinosaur that came along later and, and made that footprint. And you can see that the, 
the human footprint was made first because the theropod dinosaur, a theropod dinosaur, the three-toed dinosaur, like a Allosaurus or Tyrannosaurus, those are all in the theropod family. That theropod came along later because you can see how that middle toe has pushed into the human footprint. So the human footprint was there first, the theropod dinosaur came along later and made that impression. And that's not the only place, I mean, that's not the only print like that that we've seen. There's actually an entire track of these in a dry riverbed in Texas and another one in Russia that has a whole line of these things. You know, uh, uh, human footprints right alongside dinosaur footprints. How's that possible? There's a, a rock layer in Utah that uh, they discovered in, I think it was 1976 or something like that, uh, that in this rock layer that was supposed to be millions of years old, they unearthed a human skeleton in a rock layer that's supposed to be dated 3 million years old. Oops. A lot of these dating methods are completely wrong. So I want you to read with me what Job chapter 40 says. You know, do you know there's a couple of dinosaurs in, in the book of Job? Did you know this? Okay. I want to read this to, you, uh, read this to you here. A little bit of a longer reading here, but bear with me. Job 40 verses 15 through 24 says this. Look at behemoth, which I made along with you. God is speaking here which I made along with you. He feeds on grass like an ox. See the strength of his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. Now, this is the giveaway right here of what kind of creature this probably is. His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs or the, the muscles of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are rods of iron. He is the foremost of God's works. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. In other words, he's so big you know, that only God can draw the sword against him. The hills yield him their produce while all the beasts of the field play nearby. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan, that's the Jordan River, into his mouth. Can anyone capture him as he looks on or pierce his nose with a snare? Now, if you look at the commentary of some of these Bibles that have these, you know, the commentary below. Some of these commentaries say, well, that was a hippo or a rhino or an elephant. Folks, none of those three animals, a hippo, rhino, or elephant, has a tail that sways like a cedar tree. There's only one creature that I know about or one class of creatures that I know about who has a tail that sways like a cedar tree, and it's that right there. Brachiosaurus. Okay. Uh, that thing, Brachiosaurus, was uh, 50 feet high, 82 feet long, and weighed 50 tons. That pretty much is a good description of what we just found in, in Job chapter 40. And just again, to kind of give you a little reference here, I'm going to show you a little animation that I stripped in of, of a human next to this dinosaur, so you kind of have some scale there. So if a human was six foot tall... That's what he would look like. So that's a pretty good description, don't you think, of what we just read in Job chapter 40? And if you read on, Job chapter 41 describes a, what's probably 
a waterborne dinosaur. It's called Leviathan in Job 41, but it's a huge, nearly indestructible water creature, water dragon. And uh, so you can read that account as well. Now, by the way, if you want to learn more about dinosaurs and St. George, the dragon slayer, if you read that account, that's, that's a dinosaur. Man, I could go on and on. I, I, I love this subject. I had to like restrict it a little bit, but I could go on and on on, on, on this. As a matter of fact, Beowulf, who was a dragon slayer, um, the story of Beowulf is that there was a, um, a creature in Dutch history. So Dutch history records there was a creature that, that, that they called Grinda, and Grinda means angry. And they describe this creature as a huge, upright walking lizard with a huge head and large dagger like teeth and small front arms. What's that sound like? Like a T Rex or an Allosaurus or something like that. Well, that thing killed and ate 30 humans in that time and place. And so Beowulf. Uh, uh, engaged that thing and, and lassoed one of its small arms, and I, I, I think he tore it off. And so the, the thing ended up retreating into its lair and bled to death. So he was a big hero. But if you want to learn more about dinosaurs, there's so much more that I could talk to you about today, about how they obviously lived contemporaneously with humans. Uh, you can go to AnswersInGenesis.org. That's a wonderful, wonderful resource about creation science. And if you go to uh, just outside of Cincinnati, I can't remember the name of the little, what's the name of the little Kentucky town? It's not Covington. It's, somebody said Hebron, I think. I think it's Hebron, uh, Kentucky. Uh, but it's right outside of Cincinnati. And that's where the Creation Museum is. And they have a life-size duplication of Noah's Ark there. And there's a museum inside Noah's Ark, so you should go, should go check that out. But if you want to learn more about that, that kind of information, go to Answers in Genesis. There's a fantastic resource, okay? But after you've kind of brought those things up to people that have those kinds of, of issues and, and objections and questions, well, you know, science disproves the Bible, and you start getting into the whole dinosaur thing and the millions of years, and you can show them, there, hey, there's unmistakable evidence that man walked with dinosaurs. And, and most people are going to go, oh, right. And then you show them some of this, and they're like, oh, Hmm, interesting. And then you could ultimately bring the discussion back around once again to their need to trust in the Savior. So you could say something like this, isn't the Bible amazing? It even has dinosaurs in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? It truly is the Word of God. And the Bible also tells us that God loves us and has a way of escape from his coming wrath against sin. So now, what about you? How will you respond to God's plan of salvation? All right, let's continue on here. Let's address this millions and billions of years theory, okay? So the objection is this. It took millions of years to carve canyons. So doesn't, doesn't that prove that the earth is millions of years or billions of years old? And mankind's been on the, the earth only a short time compared to the length, the, the age of the earth. Okay, well, I've got a picture right there of a canyon at Spirit Lake near the Mount St. Helens volcano. And that canyon that you're looking at, which you can't even see the entire canyon, it's 300 feet from top to bottom. That canyon was formed in three 
hours during the Mount St. Helens eruption. So my point here is this, it doesn't take millions of years to carve out canyons or lay down rock layers. All it takes is catastrophic conditions and it happens quickly. See, that explosion when Mount St. Helens erupted, that eruption, get this, released 24 megatons of energy, which I know that you probably don't have a reference for that, but I'm going to give you a reference. It's equivalent to 1,600 times the energy of the atomic bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Japan in World War II. Now, one of those bombs wiped out an entire metropolitan city. Nagasaki was leveled. Hiroshima was leveled by one of those bombs. And yet the explosion at Mount St. Helens was 1,600 times the energy of one of those bombs. What's my point? My point is that it doesn't take millions of years to carve out canyons or lay down rock layers. All it takes is catastrophic conditions, and it happens quickly. And, and in fact, can you see in the middle there of, of that rock face, those layers in the middle? Well, typically, geologists have um, said that, well, that represents millions of years of time. The farther down you go in rock layers, the, the, the more millions of years that represents. Um, no, it doesn't. Those rock layers got laid down in three hours. So do you think there was some catastrophic conditions in, in the early earth? Like, and when I say early, I mean like 6,000 years ago, maybe. Um, there was, I mean, the flood of Noah. Hello. Right? The flood of Noah was the, more, the most catastrophic situation this earth has ever seen. So there's all kinds of things, all kinds of layers that were laid down, all this sediment that was laid down very quickly during the flood of Noah. And it's been speculated, I don't know this, but it's been speculated that a big meteor uh, hit the earth. Well, the, a big meteor did hit the earth because there's a huge crater out in, out west someplace. I don't remember the state, but maybe New Mexico or, is it, is it New Mexico? Yeah, a huge, gigantic crater. I mean, I, I don't, it's like two miles across, something like that. I don't know how big it is. It's gigantic. So it's very clear that a meteor did hit the earth at some point, maybe more than one, that may have broke up the foundations of the, of the deep uh, and spewed water up to 70 miles high. And that could have been much of where the flood came from. You know, that's a lot of that speculation. But, but the, the point is, that Noah's flood was a unbelievably catastrophic situation that laid down these sediments very, very quickly, and then they fossilized. So that's where a lot of that sediment and those rock layers came from. Clearly, because I told you earlier that in Utah, there's a rock layer that's supposed to be 3 million years old by their dating methods, and yet they found a human skeleton in there. So, oops, right? Okay, let's keep going. You're looking uh, there at a picture of Sir Arthur Keith. Now, Sir Arthur Keith was a British anatomist and anthropologist. And by the way, this is kind of off, off my point, but I, I think it kind of speaks to the character of uh, Sir Arthur Keith, or lack thereof. He was a proponent of something called scientific racism. And that's a belief that 
there are certain races that are naturally superior to other races. And that evidence exists that justifies racism. Okay? So, so Sir Arthur Keith was a terrible racist. He was an atheist. And by virtue of his atheism, he was also an evolutionist. But he said something very honest one time about evolution. And I want you to see what he says about evolution. Evolution is unproven and unprovable. We believe it only because the alternative is special creation and that is unthinkable. What's he saying? We don't have proof for evolution. It's essentially a faith is what he was saying, but that's preferable over believing that God did all this. Because they don't want to believe. Right? So that's the that's the kind of mindset that a lot of people have today. And boy, this has passed, been passed down now from generation to generation um, since at least the 1920s or before. Well, it's actually since before that, from you know, Darwin on. And uh, so people have been just been raised up in this, that this is normal, this is acceptable, this is real science. No, it's not. It's terrible science. So I don't, it's pseudoscience and not science at all. Um, speculation at best. And so, but so many people believe this that we need to be able to have intelligent discussions with them to show them, no, you know what, that this is pseudoscience, the, the real science truly interpreted actually validates this right here, the Bible. Praise the Lord. Okay. Now, on that note, Professor John Lennox, who's a mathematician and philosopher of science at Oxford University, said this, uh, Stephen Hawking said, religion is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. I said, atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. And if you've ever seen Professor John Lennox's lecture, wow. I mean, he's a giant of an intellect. And yet, he's just honest enough just to go where the research leads. That's science, isn't it? You just go where the research leads and not stick to your guns because you have a philosophical mindset or ideology that, man, this, I really don't want this to be true, so I'm going to stick to my guns over here. No, true science is you simply go where the research leads. And that's what John Lennox did. And that's the statement and the conclusion that he's come to, that atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. It's consistent with Psalm 14.1 that says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So let me read to you out of John 3 because people that adhere to that atheism, even though science suggests otherwise, and as we said with Sir Arthur Keith, you know, he said that um, evolution is unproven and unprovable. We believe it only because the alternative is special creation, which is unthinkable. Well, that's someone who's afraid of the light. That's someone who's described here in John chapter 3. And let's read this together. John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. And this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever practices the, practices the truth 
comes into the light so that it may be seen clearly that what has what he has done has been accomplished in God. So it's the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. Now, here's a book by a giant of an intellect, Charles Colson. The book, name of the book is The Burden of Truth, Defending the Faith in an Age of Unbelief. Now, Charles Colson, if you don't know who that is, was a special counsel to the president during the Nixon administration, and he was part of that whole Watergate scandal for which he spent several years in prison. And then he got saved and came to the Lord. And out of that relationship with the Lord came this kind of research that led to books like this. But I want you to see what he has to say about the resurrection because the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, man, if, if someone can disprove that, the rest of the faith comes tumbling down like a house of cards. So he studied this out, and uh, this is a big topic too that I could literally do a series on, but I just have uh, a couple statements to make about this today. Um, so was the res resurrection a legend or was it a historical fact? Well, Charles Colson says this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, he said. You know, folks, people don't willingly die for something they know to be a lie. When faced with torture or execution, everyone recants. If the story is just made up, you're not going to be boiled in oil or hung upside down on a cross or sawn in two or go to a, a whipping post and have your skin filleted by a cat of nine tails if what you're going to the whipping post for is a lie. You're going to say, um, <laughs> on second thought, I just made it up, right? No one knowingly dies for a lie. See, when the disciples were faced with that choice, they chose death rather than to denounce that their Lord and Savior had risen from the dead, which was something that they had seen with their own eyes. Now, on the point about the resurrection, I want to give you one more of many people that I could have brought into the conversation. But I, I like... Simon Greenleaf, who was one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School, and he wrote the textbook that all law students are still required to study th to this day on the laws of evidence. So if you go to Harvard, well, any law school in the United States now or, or Great Britain, you study his book. He was said to have known more about the laws of evidence than all of the attorneys who adorned the courts of Europe at that time. And he was an atheist. He was actually a Russian-born Jew, but he was an atheist, 
And he knew he was a genius in the laws of evidence. So he went forth to disprove the resurrection using the laws of evidence that he was so masterful at. And he came back from that whole endeavor believing. And he became a Christian. And he spent the rest of his life as an ardent defender of the faith. And here's what he said. I can prove to any court in the land that Jesus Christ is an actual historical figure who lived and was crucified according to the scriptural account and was resurrected from the dead on the third day. He said he could prove it to any court in the land. I would tend to believe the testimony from someone like that, wouldn't you? As we come down home stretch here, I want to talk about the fingerprints of God on the Bible for a moment, that it is truly a divinely inspired writing. And the, and the Bible has been validated over and over as accurate, consistent, reliable, and beneficial. I want to read you the quote of Pastor Randy Smith. I don't know who that is, but I found this quote and I thought would, it would be good to include here in this teaching today. He says this, in almost 30 years as a Christian and over 20 of those as a pastor, I cannot think of one instance in my life or the life of another where disobedience to God's word actually was proven to be the right decision. The Bible is inspired by God as a guidebook for your life. I say it this way to so many people that, you know, Life on earth, because of the, the fall of man and the, the influence of sin, is like walking through a, a landmine field. And in the military, there's these experts that go in and they, they, they quote-unquote, sweep the minefield and clear the minefield so the, the rest of the, the troops can come through and not get blown up. Well, guess what? The, the world out there is a landmine field, and this is your landmine sweeper right here. God gave it to us as a landmine sweeper to prevent you from blowing yourself up over and over again. And it's a lot more than that. It's God's love letter to mankind and it's his plan of salvation that although we're all infected with sin, we have a scapegoat and a savior that we can trust in that redeems us from that sin so we don't have to pay the penalty for it because there is wrath to come. Mark my words, the Bible says there is wrath to come. And the only way to escape God's wrath is through Jesus Christ. Folks, even though the Bible is an ancient document, every person in every situation, in every society that's ever existed can find timeless wisdom in this book. We find in this divinely inspired writing a book that never needs another edition. It never needs to be edited or updated and it's never obsolete or outdated. See, it speaks to us as personally and as directly as it ever has to anyone in any century since it was written. It's miraculously timeless in nature. So on that note, then, we're going to close with a couple of passages that are important to this discussion and also your discussions that you have with people that you're hopefully sharing your faith with. I, we, we all should be doing that in some way, shape, or form. And 
Psalm 36 verses 1 and 2 describes the human condition. Now, there's lots of passages in the Bible that describe the human condition. Romans 3 is another one that you can look up and go to. And, 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 and I think that's an important one to memorize too, that, uh, that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that passage needs to be addressed too. But I like this passage right here. I'm going to read it out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and it says this. There is an oracle. An oracle is another word for a saying. And there is an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. Transgression is another word for sin. Transgression is knowing the standard. You know it ahead of time, but you step over the line anyway. That's transgression, okay? So there's an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. There is no dread of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to hate or detect his sin. And that's the condition of most of mankind. We flatter ourselves too much to hate our sin or even detect it for that matter. I'm going to read you the same passage out of the, uh, the common English version. And it says this much more simplistically. Sinners don't respect God. Sin is all they think about. They like themselves too much to hate their own sins or even see them. And that's the condition of all of mankind. But there's a remedy. And I'm going to give you John 3.16 through 18 on this point, because I, I like that image there too, that, you know, look at that cross bridging the gap between, you know, those two land masses and the big canyon in between. Well, picture yourself on the other side, this side of that land mass, and you're in chains, and there's no way to get across to the other side. Picture the other side as God's perfect standard of holiness and righteousness and, and your entrance into heaven. And so that's what this is representing. And, and what Jesus did for us on the cross not only broke the chains of our sin, but bridged the gap between our sinfulness and God's perfect standard of righteousness and the entrance into heaven. That's what Jesus did for us. So let me read to you out of John 3, 16 through 18 then, and then we're going to close. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that, who, that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And once again, why is that verse 18 true of people that don't believe and reject God's one and only son because they feel like their own righteousness, their own good deeds. I'm a good person. I would never hurt anybody. So God's probably happy with me if there is a God. And if there is a heaven, I'll probably make it someday because I'm a good person. I would never hurt anybody. Well, we've covered this at length already. I'm not going to elaborate on it this morning, just except to say that no one, no how, no way of times in the past or present time or the future will ever get to heaven based upon your own good deeds because you've already smashed God's laws into a thousand pieces multiple times. You've already, if, I, if you'll pardon the expression, we've already flipped God off multiple times and said, no, God, I, I don't need you. I don't need your wisdom. I'll do it my way. I know what's best for my life. So, you know, I got, I got this. And we do things our own way and that's called self-righteousness. 
self-righteousness. Now, a lot of people outside the church accuse people in the church of being self-righteous, but the whole reason that people don't come to the, come to the cross in the first place is because of self-righteousness. I don't need God. I don't need, need the cross. I don't need the Bible. I got this. I'm a good person. But if you go through the law, which I did a little bit of that in the last two teachings, you go through the law, you find none of us are good. All of us are lawbreakers. All of us are idolaters. All of us are, are murderous at heart, anyway. All of us are lustful and adulterous at heart. All of us are liars at heart. And unless we make that right through the finished work of Jesus we're going to find that what we thought was our own self-righteousness is not going to make it. As a matter of fact, let me quote once again as I close here. Isaiah 64, uh, verse 6, which I quoted last week, that man's righteousness is like filthy rags in God's sight. Your best day of righteousness. And this is the message that needs to come across in your Bible, uh, in your gospel proclamations. Your best day of righteousness is still like filthy rags to be trampled and flushed down the toilet in God's sight. That's what your best day of righteousness on your own and on my own is like. That's why we need a Savior for him to clean us up, dust us off, pick us up, and then begin helping us through his grace to live a life that pleases him. That's the only way we can do it, through his grace. What is grace? Grace grace gives us what we don't deserve, which is God's mercy. It saves us from what we do deserve, which, which is God's wrath. But grace is also an empowerer. Grace helps us to live a life that's pleasing to God. And that's the only way that you'll do it, through the grace of God, through a submission, uh, a life submitted to Jesus Christ. So, yes, there are ways to um, address these little peripheral issues like we did this morning with, you know, the age of the earth and dinosaurs and evolution and all that. But eventually, it all has to come back around with, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the cross? Are you going to repent or are you going to continue on your own self-righteous way, finding that that wasn't enough to appease God? You can only appease God's wrath through Jesus. That's the message you and I bear. And I'm going to give you one last quote here, and then we're going to pray after this. And I want to thank Jennifer for this quote because I found this on her Facebook page. And yes, I do stalk your Facebook pages. Your pastor is checking out your Facebook pages. I want to know what kind of people are in my church. And sometimes your Facebook pages uh, are uh, pretty telling, right? So, but more importantly, folks, God sees what you post. And God sees what you think, say, and do. Uh, I just want to know who, who's who in our congregation. And sometimes your Facebook pages are really good, really uh, you tell a lot about a person. Um, anyway, enough about that. Let's read this quote, and, and we're going to pray. Charles Spurgeon said, you have never truly found Jesus if you do not tell others about him. Man, that's true. He, uh, it was the same Charles Spurgeon who said, do you have no desire for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. So that's a pretty good telltale sign of whether or not you've really had an experience with Christ. Do, do, do you desire other people to be saved from destruction? Folks, when I came to the Lord, day one, I was 
telling people about what happened to me. I was telling people about my experience with the Lord and will you not come also? And we need to be about the Father's business while it's still called today. Stand with me if you will. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.